Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Now serving your second course on Fragments of Silicon. <laughs> People, welcome to your well, weekly uh, dose, of, weekly vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. Uh, it's like, although calling it weekly this week is a bit egregious since, you know, we, we've had more than one show. More on that later. But uh, anyway, I'm your host, Adam, and with me in the studio, as always, are Ogre. Yo. Dalek. Here and Petty Fan. Yay! <laughs> All right, so uh, let's get into it. Um, Petty Fan, what's going on with you this week? Um, not a whole lot. I've been having kind of a bad headache, but I've just been kind of muscling through it. Uh-huh. Um, been playing video games. As have we all been. Yes. Um. And really not a whole else lot going on here. Hmm. Still need to mo- still need to trim back the hedges at some point, but rain keeps getting in the way of that. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's here, here in England, it's horrible. Uh, uh, all right. And other than that, laughing at the apple pencil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think it's. Le- I still think that's less hilarious than the uh, Surface keyboard that they built into the iPad Pro. Yeah. I did not see this. I will be back. <laughs> anyway, um, Galax, what's going on with you? Well, I finished my Master Grade Gundam X today, and I'm somewhat disappointed, although not surprised, that it doesn't fit in the box with its backpack on, because the Gundam X has, X has an enormous backpack or specifically a very wide backpack. Um, I've been trying to keep up on playing games for the show, and I've been having some success with that, although I do need to still play some things for a review. And uh, I was glad yesterday to learn that uh, the updated release of Mighty Gunvolt, or of uh, Azure Striker Gunvolt, that is um, on Steam now, the update is indeed going to be making it to the 3DS version, so I don't necessarily need to buy the Steam version, although I may still anyway, because I like the game. Noted. Uh, anything else? Um, 
nothing in particular interest. I'm trying to still trying to work on stuff for my Pathfinder campaign, but we haven't been able to meet in two weeks, so I'm mostly caught up with what we need to do next time. Hmm. Neat. All right, uh, over Europe. Uh, I'm get, finally getting over my sickness. I've been sick for about a week now. Uh, yeah, I got my sore throat Thursday, and now I'm just at the point where it's given up, but I still got the crap to deal with in my yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And it unfortunately forced us not to record on Monday. Maybe tomorrow we'll double check with that. But mm-hmm. well, do you have to do a like go over to Naka's house recording or just parallel quest? Uh, I have to go over and record. Mm. Oh, that means we're doing. they're doing something interesting. Yeah, we're going on a grand tour of some sort. Mm. Well, how, uh, how much more Xenoverse do you have? Uh, it's just the GT DLC story, and then it's just the parallel quest for that, and the parallel quest for Resurrection F, and outside of mentor stuff, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And, that still sounds like a, uh, quite a bit there. Well, the mentors tend to take up a lot. Well, I, I know. I, not this, Especially for Elder Kai, because Elder Kai is like... Elder Kai is you have to be 90, level 93 to be able to complete his entire thing, so... I know not. It's been, not easy to get up to that level. I know not has been pretty occupied with the mentor stuff. Is he done with that yet, or is he still grinding away? I believe he's still grinding away. That's kind of I never really got a clear idea of how many mentors there are in that game. Is it just like a handful, or are there like tons? It's just a handful. Yeah. I'm sure you'll see uh, all of them. Because you know. I think he's done like five or maybe six now, but I didn't know if that was like half of them or if there were like 20. I think there's 14 in total. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a little less than half. Yeah. On a more positive note, I think you've solidified your post Zeno uh, plan. Well, we have to discuss that further, especially what we're going to do. But yeah, I did get Green Fandango on sale for like, like for like six bucks or so. About- Would have been the five buck version, but I went for that that soundtrack thing. So I, I tend not to listen to those soundtracks. So I, you know, I'm like, yeah. Or if I do listen to the soundtrack, it's usually on YouTube. So I'm like, I'll get the. I got the five dollar version. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've always wanted to play that game, so that'll probably be happening eventually. Yeah. Also, Steven's back. Yay! Yes, that is true. Yeah. We had fun with that. And Steven's also coming back tomorrow. Yeah. Well. Not. He's back on TV, so. Not that Steven, Steven Universe. Oh, yeah, that's Steven. Too many Stevens. <laughs> I, hereby I hereby officially propose a one Steven limit, which may or may not involve transplanting a gem into Stephen Colbert's abdomen. Yeah, that's what to say. But Stephen Colbert is the universe. Eh, eh. Checkmate, my friend. Checkmate. All right. Um, that's it for me. All right, so my go. Uh, let's see. Not too much going on this week, personally, mainly because we have been very, very busy working on the show this week. Like, I think this has been 
the most we've ever done ever. Hey, we have a yeah. video show. Yeah, it's like because uh, first on Saturday, <laughs> we were actually interviewed uh, by a good friend of mine, uh, Shane Stacks, who runs uh, a, a terrestrial radio show called Chain Plays. Cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. Well, as you noted, you know, there's not too many, you know, traditional uh, broadcasts of the things we do. So it was really interesting to see that done, you know, on the thing that people listen to in in their cars. Oh, it's like interview went well. Like, um, it's a, it's now available in podcast form. Or here's the link on YouTube. For those in the chat room, no. So, you know, uh, we went about thirty minutes, I think. And yeah, if you want to know more about like the behind the scenes or how we got started with this whole endeavor, uh, I would recommend listening to that. <laughs> the answer all of us got in the video game was because of a relative. Yeah, that seemed to be the common theme. I was told that it was there. No. Anyway, anyway, it was certainly an interesting experience being the one, at, you know, there, you know, on the other side of the coin. Now, anyway, uh, let's see. On Sunday, we recorded the one, uh, the One Piece Pirate Warriors three review. That went a lot longer than we th- than I thought it would. <laughs> it's, well, it's One Piece. Everything goes longer than you would expect. Right. Chris Rosa, excuse me. That's the guy called. But yeah, that went about an hour. You know. Yeah, pretty damn close to an hour. Yeah, it's like usually our reviews go about ooh thirty or so minutes. Of course, this was the rare game that we all actually managed to uh, put a few hours into. Now, uh, let's see. <clears throat> On Tuesday, we had we had a an A show with uh, Ghost Light. Um, for those who don't know, they're a UK localizer of Japanese games. You know, they used to do physical stuff. That, you know, they said they would still do physical stuff, but they're, they've been mostly doing stuff on Steam, like uh, the Augurus series and much more recently Way of the Samurai 4. Now, we talked with Ross for about, you know, a good hour, hour and a half. Yeah, just about an hour and a half. Well, we were on for just about an hour and a half. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You know, that was pretty much all under interview. Yeah, it was a really good interview. So, uh, yeah, and uh, that's all available on the website. Uh, probably iTunes as well, although sometimes the web version of iTunes hits a snag and doesn't update in line with the other things. I, I've never been able to figure out why it does that. It's never consistent about it. Basically, if you listen to this on iTunes now, it's probably available too. Yeah, I mean, we got this show we're recording right now. Uh, we've got uh, MSP on Friday, which is going to, we're going to have uh, Brad Jones back on the program. You know, I'm sure we're all really looking forward to that because it's always good when we have Brad on the show. It's always good to know he survived his time at a local state fair, <laughs> despite everything he eats there. Okay. And not having to get his stomach pumped? Yeah. And yet, you had deep fried what? <laughs> you had deep fried what, and your heart's still beating? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just to be sure, we're, there's an up late with Mace this week, yes? 
I have not been informed otherwise. Okay. I still well, have notice. Yeah, keep in mind last time we only knew there wasn't like in the last five minutes, so <laughs> Yeah, but if you get that notice, let me know either in the uh, uh chat or other you know, tell me. So mm-hmm. so I'm not like, Oh shit, they're not doing a show this week. Huh. Anyway, and let's see, uh next Sunday we're going to be reviewing Way of the Samurai four. No. Like, given all this um, and the fact that our guest canceled uh, next week, I'm not going to say that we're not going to have a guest, but it's looking more and more that we're going to have an hour long, which is good because, you know, gives us a bit of breathing room and we've got some big stuff happening at the latter part of the month. Mm -hmm. We've got a Legends interview, and if all goes to plan, the last week of um, September, we're going to be doing three interviews. So... You know, having a, you know, just a topic there in the middle of the month is actually going to be good for us. All right. um, And I think that's about it for this week. So merrily we roll along to the interview. Um, This week we are welcoming Danny Hayes of Delve Interactive. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Uh, It's now quarter past two in the morning here in the in United Kingdom. Uh, getting a little sleepy, but I still feel pretty good. That's good, that's good. We always, we're always glad when um, European guests can make make it to our main show. So we bought- and, and if you've fallen asleep during the interview, just tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so as we so often like to start out these interviews with. Um, what inspired you to get into the video game industry? Uh, it's probably just the fact that I was a total nerd growing up. Um, as most people in games are. Like, I don't know, ever since I had like a Sega Mega Drive, like gaming was my thing. Um, and I was a bit of a problem child as well. I was like uh, messing up in school and stuff a lot, so I used games to escape a lot. But like, um, and I used to play games as fun, but then when I uh, got a PS1 and I got Final Fantasy VII, that, that made me into a hardcore gamer. Like, that was all I did <laughs> for a while. And I just loved everything about it. I tried to get my hands hand on as many games as I could. And then, you know, I, I learned when I was like 17 that you could actually do this for a job. And I thought, this is perfect, so I'll do that. Now, did you, like, go to college to program? Yeah, I, I went and did, like, uh, a computer, like, pro, uh, programming course at university. Um, and I dropped out. <laughs> I, did, I uh, didn't like it. Like, I don't know. that I think because it's only fairly recently in the last few years that, like, colleges and stuff have started doing courses around video games mm. and coding them and stuff. Um, so I think, I know I found myself being a lot more productive just doing things on my own and not, you know, paying tuition fees. So I dropped out and tried to go indie for a while, which didn't work out because, you know, I was still learning. It wasn't very good. Um, well, what kind of time frame are we looking at here? Oh, what, like how long was I at university or? Well, I mean, like when you dropped out and uh, went indie. Because, uh, I went indie for like six months until I had to get a job, and it was, I just made a couple of really bad iPhone games. 
Like it was during that whole gold rush period, like I guess like five, six years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and like uh, I thought, yeah, I can make something and everyone will get it and I'll be a millionaire and it will, it will be good. And I think it like I remember putting it up on the app store and it, I called it Epic Beard. And it's not it's not up there anymore. I took it down because it's so bad. I did all the art myself and it was like programmer art, it's horrible. And it's basically this giant Viking beard chased this little jelly character that you controlled around the screen and if it caught you you, you died. And that was it. <laughs> and I think I put it up for like ninety nine cents or whatever. Yeah. And it got like eight copies on the first day it sold and it was just downhill from there. <laughs> so I paid for a few pints at the pub, I think. I think I remember that. So uh, where did you end up getting a job? Uh I I got a job at Capcom. Oh wow. <laughs> it's but yeah, it sounds cool, but like if you if you Capcom's pretty cool if you go to work in Japan, but here in the UK they've got their mobile studio. And they got like kind of rebranded themselves and made up this company called Beeline. And there, I was working on the Snoopy franchise of games, uh, which are like Farmville clones. And uh, I, I went there, I think, oh cool, I've got this job at Capcom. I wonder what cool thing I'll be working on: Street Fighter, Devil May Cry, who knows? And there you go, work on Snoopy, and it's just like Farmville. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah, that just sounds incredibly depressing. <laughs> uh, Fortunately, not all franchises are equally prestigious. No. Yeah. Even Resident Evil has lost some of its prestigiousness. Although it's done okay recently with the remake of like the older ones kind of thing. Yeah. There but, was uh, Resident Evil Revelations 2. Yeah. But it, I mean, they're still not on the level of you know the original one or Resident Evil 4, but best than Resident Evil 6, which is what's important. The less said about six, the better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, was, it was difficult at the time. I, I can tell you, like, in the office, like, all the marketing business people were running around going, oh, it's the coolest game ever, man. And, you know, they're all trying to be excited about it. But you could tell, you could see it in their eyes. There was something there. They knew, they knew what was going to happen. They played the game. They knew. <laughs> you know, the, the the later Resident Evil games have always been controversial, but you know because like they've been moving away from the survival horror, but the six was just wow. <laughs> it was I guess it it's main flaws it was just trying to do like three games in one. Yeah. Like because you could play you play different characters in different parts of the game and then well you know, one was right the shoot them up and one was a, more of a horror style. Well, it was also alleged that, you know, like, Capcom put a ton of resources into RE6, like a 200-person team, uh, you know, hundreds of, maybe not a $100 million, but certainly very expensive even for a AAA game, so it had... Yeah, yeah, they, they did. That's the thing, it wasn't like they put three games into one game, it pretty much was three games. Yeah. Um, like, so yeah, I, I know, like, I mean, the team's... Um, that worked on it. That, yeah, they were pretty sizable. They pretty much had everyone they could get on it, and they even outsourced uh, some people for it. So, yeah, that was a pretty huge project for them. I can't. I probably couldn't. Shouldn't talk about it that much. <laughs> um, I couldn't say. Yeah, like, but well, uh, how long did you work at Beeline? Uh, I was there for like almost three years. 
and that was pretty. Uh, I made the first Snoopy game, and then did updates for that, and then did the second one, did updates for that. Uh, and it was while I was working there, I started working on Poncho, mm-hmm. um, and I came up with the idea with it with my partner Jack O'Dell, who also does design and the music for the game, and started working on it part time while I worked there, um, and then like I guess like a year and a half ago now, like I just quit and decided to go full indie with all my savings and see how long I could do this for full time. That's certainly a common uh, refrain we've heard on this program. Uh, Well, has it been an arduous road uh, developing Poncho? Yeah. (laughs) It's been been pretty difficult. Like, um, I don't know if you know, but we did did a Kickstarter. I do. uh, Last September, it's been a year since we did the Kickstarter. Um, And that failed. And that was a big blow because when when we were running it, we we had run out of money when it launched, so we were pretty much just hoping uh, it would go through and it didn't. So we were pretty down with dump starters, but luckily we got contacted by Rising Star Games, who are probably best known for Deadly Premonition and uh, Cloud Built. Um, and uh, yeah, they just said basically they'll give us pretty much the Kickstarter funding we wanted. So we've been working with them, and it's all been going pretty well. Um, and now we're like really, really close to release, and it's almost over, and we can work on a new game. So we will see. We've pretty much put everything we had into this. Like, I think there was, there was like a good several months where I was working like 70 hours a week easy on the game. So I just, you know, when you work from home, it's like, you know, you just you go into your office and you think, oh, I'll just play you some games today, and then you know, oh, gosh, maybe I can make that bit of pixel art better or that level could use some tweaking, I'll do that, and then suddenly 10 hours have gone by and you don't have a life. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I can actually relate to that because, well, for a good deal of us, we kind of do work at home. So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so walk us through how the development process of Poncho works. Uh, well, so, so there's three of us. Um, so at the start, the very start, um, it was just around the time I took the job at Capcom, um, me and Jack were just thinking what we were going to do, we were going to do some kind of like a proper big indie game, we want to go to the level of like Braid or Super Meat Boy and, you know, spend some years on it and really put everything we've got into this one. Um, and we were trying to come up with ideas about what to do and then one time, because Jack can do a little bit of pixel art, um, and he, he just drew this little robot guy wearing a poncho, and he had a backpack at the time, and I thought, oh, that guy looks awesome, I don't know what the game is, we're, we're going to make a game about this guy. So, yeah, we started doing it, and then, I don't know, I can't, it was either me or Jack, I can't remember now, but like, um, we were trying to come up with what would be cool mechanics, and we thought, with well, that kind of character, has got to be a platform of some kind, so what can we do that's different? And me and Jack both played the same kind of games growing up, so we talked about like uh, things like Golden Axe and uh, old school Sega games. We were thinking it was always I don't know. We I remember thinking like if you're playing those levels, you just go left to right, and you can see these hills in the background, and then mountains behind them, and but you can never go there. So maybe it's cool if you just press a button, and suddenly you're back in that area. 
So we tried to do that, and now we've got this kind of plane system that you can move into foregrounds and backgrounds, and it seems to be a pretty cool mechanic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then just worked at Capcom for like two and a half years or so, working on the game part-time. And then when I left, we brought uh, Matthew Weeks on board, who's our pixel artist. We found him on some uh, pixel art forums. We just put a little job post up there saying we need someone to help us with our game. And we got a load of replies, and he was just um, the best one by far. It was That was pretty funny, actually. There were some people, when you put a job post on like an art site, there's so many people that think they're good. Um, there's so many people that just put almost like, I don't know, just really bad pixel art. Like, even I could have done better. But my favorite was one guy who, like, sent me this really professional formal email and he thought, okay, this guy's always put some effort into his email. Maybe he wants the job. I'll take a look at his portfolio. And he was like, yeah, I think I've got the perfect style for you. I think it's really what you want. And I go to his portfolio and it's just like hentai. <laughs> and it wasn't even good. He was like, it was like really badly drawn. And it was just like, okay, I'm not going to reply to this guy. I think you may have misinterpreted the type of art we wanted for our game. Yeah. It totally does not involve any naked people. <laughs> well, I... Sort of. Although I don't think I've seen any robots without filming yet. Yes. I don't know. I mean, every... I think pretty much every robot in Poncho has got some kind of clothing. At the very least, they have a hat. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, we brought Matt on board and we started working on it, making it look really good. Then we got to Kickstarter, ran that, to the game to EGX which was known as Eurogame, which is here in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then we started working with Rising Star, and we've been making it ever since, just spending our whole lives on it and putting everything we've got into it. So that's pretty much it. And now we've got, you know, pretty much almost every major platform lined up and ready to go, and it's pretty much the end now. Well, um, so how are you feeling about that? Oh, it's, it's weird. It feels, I don't know, it's just like, it's weird to let go of something when it, you've been doing it for so long. Like, it's, you know, there, there was the odd time when I've managed to, like, see some friends at the pub or something, and it would feel strange because I'm not used to, like, being away from the game. Mm. And I thought a lot of times, like, I'm not, I don't want to do a sequel to Poncho. I'm going to work on some other games for, like, at least five years or something. But as soon as, soon as I finished, as soon as the game was feature complete, like, just before we started porting it, um, it was like, I can do Poncho too. I've got some ideas. But I don't know, we're thinking, we'll, we'll think about it. I think we'll definitely do a few other games before we even touch on that kind of thing. Well, I can imagine. I mean, this, like this game has taken a year and a half of your life. And, uh, and we've had other people express the same kind of, um, they call it post-release depression. Like you've been- Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've, I've, in interviews with like other developers and stuff, and they always seem to say they've got a post-release depression kind of thing. And I spoke, I speak, I've spoken to other developers who are like, yeah, it feels weird. Even if you become a millionaire overnight, whatever, it still feels weird. I don't know. I'm not sure what to expect. I'm just, I'm just, think, I'm just kind of taking it as it comes. And when you know, when release date happens, I guess I don't know. We'll see how I feel. Makes sense. Makes sense. 
Now, you mentioned briefly back there that you, uh, Poncho is also coming to consoles. Um, have you been doing the ports in-house, or has that been outsourced to others? Sorry? Um, are you doing uh, the console versions of Poncho, or are other people doing Poncho? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty much all of it. I'm the only programmer, um, mm-hmm. and that's been pretty tough. Like, we probably, if, if it was, like, just Steam, we could have released, like, months ago, but we've, we really want to get um, every, every version out at the same time. Um, we want to do, like, a big release, so we've been working hard and getting everything working properly, and that's pretty much all there now, so it's a few last things, and we're in certification for a few versions, and we're, like, super close to release now. Right. Uh, I like how the chat is all about hentai. <laughs> <laughs> I, started, I started something, I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> that's less surprising than you might think. Yeah, they're talking, it's not even just laughing at hentai, it's just, that's about, about hentai, about sorry, about talent, about hentai, and how hard it is to draw. Yeah, welcome to our chat. Yeah. <laughs> it also, you know, our executive producer kind of does this sort of thing uh, as part of his business. So <laughs> hentai comes up from time to time. So uh, anyway, um, now is the game built in like a Unity or a, another? Yeah, mode? that's it. Built in Unity, so I mean that made the porting process a lot easier. And there's still like a, a lot of code you have to write for like each platform, you know, because they each got their own, uh, you know, achievement system and you know input system and all that kind of stuff and save load data that kind of thing. But yeah, Unity is it's really good to use. It's much faster to prototype stuff than other engines, I think. Right. Uh, well- have you run into any like major problems with like say the PlayStation 4 version or the Wii U version? Ah, uh, the Wii U. <laughs> it was probably the most um, difficult one to port for just because it's the most different. Oh, it's always the Wii U, isn't it? It's got yeah. this other screen that you have to work with at the same time as you know just displaying the game. Well, that and also just the Wii U isn't the one that's built on practically identical hardware as the other two. Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's slower than, it's one of our slowest platforms, to be sure. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it still, it still looks good. I mean, the game is pixel art. And you'd think that'd be easy, but the fact that in each level, there's literally thousands of layers of sprites, and it's displaying a lot of graphical data at once. And that's all, like, got lighting across it and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff, a lot of it's animated. Like, it all takes up quite a lot of processing power, so... Even though it's pixel art, it's, we've got a lot of pixel art just in every screenshot. So, right. uh, yeah. I have a technical question from Vicious Slayer. Does oh. AMD's mantle help making the port from PC to console and vice versa because it's supposed to? Uh, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really affect it. Like the Unity engine handles most of that for me. So, like things like um, trying to deal with any kind of hardware interfaces other than dealing with control specific controllers and things. Uh, it's pretty easy. I don't have to deal with like, um, I mean, on some console versions like the beta and um, Wii U, you can do certain things like access the memory card and the CPU and stuff and tell it to use certain data in certain ways. But other than that, it's fairly simple, straightforward. 
and uh, in regards to the Wii U version, are you using that gamepad in any special way, or is it just like... Uh, it's just, just going to be off-TV play. So, you know, you can um, you know, basically just play the game on the gamepad or the TV. That's just how we're using it. That's always convenient. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of like how Shovel Knight uses it. I think that's got off-TV play. It's the rare game that doesn't have off-TV play. Usually the ones that don't have off-TV play are the ones that use the gamepad for some other feature, like Splatoon doesn't, because it's always the map, which sometimes you have to tap on. Right. Yeah. Uh, 13 AM games is a uh, run, though. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty much any Nintendo game uses the has, has special features in the gamepad, usually. Um, and uh, in regards to the Vita version, uh, did you were you able to bring the entire game to the platform, or did you have to scale it back a bit? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much the entire game. I did have to scale back a few things, like um, there's some advanced lighting techniques in the game, um, so I had to scale back some of that because the, the Vita is obviously it's our lowest platform by far because it's I think it's about as fast as an iPhone four. I don't know if that's quite accurate. I can't remember the specs of the iPhone 4, but um, yeah, it can't handle that much stuff. So um, yeah, pretty much just the lighting. Um, and you know, when you whenever you enter a level in Poncho, like you get these randomly generated characters. Uh, this kind of ecosystems all walking around and interacting with each other. So there's there'll be slightly less characters and moving stuff, moving stuff. But the whole game is pretty much the same. Mm. Now, uh, did you ever consider bringing the game to the 3DS? Uh, we'd love to. Like, the game is perfect for 3DS. Um, and it kind of reminds me of a couple games on the 3DS. Uh, like, uh, have you ever played Mutant Mudge Deluxe? Uh, yeah, I have. I have heard of it. Um, I don't. I don't own a 3DS. Um, but yeah, I, do, I know of that game. I hadn't heard of it when I was designing Poncho, and then people started. Telling us about it when we were at EGX, like uh, after like our first year of development, or whatever. Um, and yeah, like it does have it definitely has a thing, but like with mutant months, when you shift back into plane, you have to do it from a specific place. Right. Yeah. Like you just got like a little up arrow on a block or whatever, and you have to then you can go back. Whereas in Poncho, you can shift anywhere. Um, so there's a lot more freedom, I guess, in how you explore the world. Yeah, it's certainly. It's not the exact same thing, just some similarity in the idea, and they're both things that involve a lot of layers, which sort of, while obviously it's not necessary to have that in actual 3D, it's one of the things that actual 3D can actually help with sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And also for a platformer like this, uh, portables can be fun. Yeah, well, we definitely want to bring it to 3DS. It's just a matter of when Unity Engine supports it. And that they did do an announcement saying they're going to support the next version of the 3DS that comes out. Yeah, the, when that actually happens, to me. Yeah, the the new 3DS actually supports Unity. It's powerful enough to support it. In fact, they had a presentation on 3DS Unity like a couple of months ago. Yeah, uh, it's not out yet, unfortunately. But right. as soon as it is, I'll jump on that. Yeah, because. Uh, Playing the game, I kept thinking, this would be a really good 3DS game. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely plays on that kind of 2.5D kind of thing. Mm. Like The game's made of 2D characters, but it's set with like a 3D perspective, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right, now, um, 
another thing about the poncho here is it's a puzzle platform. Although it's not, it's got the puzzles are built into with the mechanics in the level design. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's kind of like a mix. So there's, there's there's a lot of levels that are basically just sort of twitch platforming at times, and there's some levels where you have to kind of work out like, oh well, I need to shift there, then go to this other area, shift forward, and then if I press that button, that thing opens up, and then I can go in there, like that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of got a mix of things. I want players to kind of feel that kind of victory satisfaction when they complete an area. So a lot of it's quite can be quite frustrating, but there's also areas that kind of lets you explore your own pace. Yeah, I, I've encountered both. Like uh, I'm at the forest right now, and that's where the switch platform is starting to ramp up. Yeah. So. It, yeah. So, so what did you what? What do you think of the game so far? Uh, so far, it's been really interesting. Really, like, I like what it does, and I like the way it does it. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's like, how do I put this? It's a different kind of puzzle platformer than what I've played in recent times. Yeah. yeah. But, like, um,. How do I put this? A lot of puzzle platformers are either like physics based or they are like object based. This one's actually more about the design of the levels. Yeah. You know, it's like, and we do plan on reviewing Poncho um, the Sunday after next. So, yeah. Yeah. It's like, as I said, I, I like what I've put. Uh, Played so far, it's just uh, haven't had a lot of time to play it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, have the rest of you uh, managed to get to Poncho yet? Uh, uh, I was actually just uh, having an, an hour, hour in right now. One at a time, one at a time. Galax, you go first. I was, say, I was actually just booting it up to try it while we were talking because my first impression of it was that it was just super cute and looked like a lot of fun, but I haven't actually had a ton of time because I had to work and do some stuff, so. Yeah. And the rigors of adulthood. Petty <laughs> yeah. uh, fan? I had like a little less than half an hour into it just because I keep getting sidetracked, but it looks interesting. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I wish we could give deeper impressions, but, you know. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Well, that's what the separate review will be for. Yeah, that, that's why we're. That's why I said, you know what, we're going to review this because you know we uh, we didn't. I knew we didn't really have a lot of time this week to put into the game, so I'm like, all right, so we'll do another review. You know, that, that's what we tend to do with games that we don't have enough time to focus on. And uh, we'll we'll certainly let you know when that review is live. Yeah, well, the game takes like four or five hours to complete, I think, on average. I mean, that's, but that's based on, like, us, the developers, and people we know playing it. Right. I don't know if that's a bit biased, but, like, there's multiple endings, and mm -hmm. there will probably be levels you don't see. There's a lot of, there's quite a few hidden levels. Um, yeah. And also, it's got this thing where, uh, I mean, for those of you that played it, like, you can go left or right. It's pretty much open world, so like you could, there's lots of different ways to complete kind of each area. Um, so I know it's really it can be really variable how long it takes, but once you get to the 
I'd say the fourth area, it's starting the difficulty does ramp up quite a bit. I don't doubt it. Uh, it's also kind of um, kind of Metroidvania-ish. I mean, it's not not so much in the world setup, but you do get power-ups, and you, yeah. there's a lot of backtracking. Like, I've gone back and forth between the first two areas a number of times because, I, you know, I got this key, which unlocks this door, which, you know, you know, I got, like, the the um, stomp power-up. Yeah. So, like I said, I... Did you, find, did you find the underground disco level that's in the first area? Not yet. But I, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like, I, you know, I saw something on the uh, hidden disco level, but I'm like, I haven't found it yet. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, like, uh, the ground stomp, there's, like, areas you can smash into the ground, and it'll break up, and, like, there'll be, like, a cavern you can jump into. Yeah. it's also, uh, They're quite hidden, though. Yeah. It's also interesting uh, playing this game at, at this point in time because, you know, it's not out yet. And thus, I can't, like, just go to GameFAQs or YouTube to find stuff. Yeah, I guess that that is pretty cool, like... Yeah. You know, you go back to that kind of time before the internet when you had to really just figure stuff out for yourself. Yeah, it's not the first time I've experienced it recently, but it's always interesting because I'm like, oh, right, I actually need to look for things. Like, there's not a YouTube video showing me where every secret is. If this yeah. is on YouTube, somebody has a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure that, you know, once the game is out and, you know, once people have a chance to explore it and find everything, you know, it's going to have all the the FAQs and hidden... Yeah, I I mean, I don't know, as a designer, it's kind of... I really want people to have their own personal experience with it, but, like, uh, you know, these things happen. I like what um, Jonathan Blow did with Braid. Mm -hmm. Um... He actually created his own braid cheat site. So, and he did it. So, like when you know, when he t- typed in uh, braid walkthrough or braid cheat, his site would be at the top of the Google page. And you go, you go into it, and it's just before you can access it, he's got a little message from Jonathan Blow. So it's from Jonathan Blow, like, please don't do this. Like the game's meant to be a journey you experience for yourself, and if you do this, it won't mean anything. Like you might as well just go watch the YouTube video of the ending. So and I, I I did get frustrated with that game and I went to look for a tip to get past one of the puzzles and I saw that and went, Okay, I'm gonna go do this and it felt really satisfying um to play through it without looking online. I mean I've done it for so many other games, like looking online, but I don't know. I like to hope people will play it for themselves, but I know people will probably just look online because the game punching can be quite frustrating in the same way Braid can. Well, just as long as you don't have any two-hour power stars. Like, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, asking not to do the game pack thing is, yeah. It, it's just, you know, when you do something like that, I don't begrudge people for actually looking up a solution. Yeah. Two-hour power star? Okay, so let me explain this. Braid has this one um, collectible where you have to legitimately wait two hours to get. I think it's I think it's three hours. I can't remember. Is that the one where you have to stand on the cloud and you have to wait yeah. for it to drift? Yeah. 
I, 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 I thought about the, I thought about getting all the stars, and the stars, like, there's no way you're going to figure out how to get them because you don't even know you're supposed to get them in the first place. But like, they, they are not like a secret ending. But like, I, I'm going to bet 99.999% of people watch that ending via YouTube. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched that ending by YouTube. And I, you know, I didn't have time to, you know, stand around for two hours waiting for a, a, a cheat. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I'm sure there's always a balance with these sort of things. Yeah, I mean, most of the poncho is based on skill, mm-hmm. and um, we try to make it as, you know, as give, give it as much flow as possible. So, like, when you die, you reappear right where you were. So you can just go, oh, okay, well, I'm right here. I might as well try this platforming, jumping bit again, see if I get it this time, and every time you inch that a little bit closer, and kind of like see the meat boy. Um, so, there's a lot of times where, you know, even a game pin probably won't help you, it's just a matter of you timing the jumps right and the plane shifting correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's a question, just from my first experience. Is there any non-full screen mode, or is it just full screen? Uh, it's just full screen. Um okay. I don't know, I, was, I always thought that would be what pretty much everyone would play. And I don't know, it makes it a lot easier to code resolution type code for that kind of thing. But like, um, I don't know, would you have preferred to play it in windowed mode? Um, I generally prefer to play in windowed mode partially because I use a two-monitor setup. Yeah. And the if I wanted to play it in full screen, I wanted to play it in full screen on the secondary monitor, so... All right. I don't. I don't. Partially. Partially. This is just my general lack of knowledge regarding computer stuff. So. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I'm, I'm think, probably not being optimal, but. I can't remember, quite which version I sent you guys codes to, but like, um, it has. Yeah, I know it's Steam, but like we've got different Steam builds. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, because it's not released yet, so they're all like beta things. I mean, it's not beta. Like, there is a full version. But like uh, every time we upload fixes or whatever to the game, just before it's used to think, oh, okay, I've just found this tweak, I'll add that in before we release, that kind of thing. So there are still going to be a few changes compared to what you've played, but it'll be pretty much the same. Right. Uh, so what can you tell us about the story of Pancho? Uh Okay, well, the story, I mean, the world looks pretty cute and everything. The story is a little dark and maybe a bit, Philosophical, serious, like kind of like a, like commonly used um, man versus machine, sorry, man versus nature kind of story. So <clears throat> the game is set uh, several centuries after an apocalypse, which in the game is called the Calamity, and that basically wiped out humanity um, and all their kind of robot creations that they made. Damn it, Bahamut, did it again. <laughs> <laughs> the Dark Bahamut, Bahamut Zero. Um, yeah, so like, um, yeah, so all the robots are left behind trying to get, find like a purpose in life, like why should they exist anymore if there's no humans to serve, that kind of thing. And uh, nature's just been slowly taking the earth over. So by the time Poncho wakes up, um, he wakes up with a kind of dream message from his, his father, the maker, um, who tells him to find him in this red tower. And, you know, if he does, there's something you can do to bring humanity back. So, you know, so Poncho is kind of 
let loose in this world and you know the tower's out there somewhere and it's just fully overgrown we we, we we i knew i wanted to do something post-apocalyptic with the game but like i didn't want to do it like all dusty and rusty like fallout or whatever because so many post-apocalyptic games it's like yeah it's all gray it's all brown and that's it like i wanted it to have lots of color and like really play on the idea that kind of um the world's kind of overgrown with nature and stuff and there's all this kind of all these things moving around and this world feels alive, I guess. In yeah, a way. This is very green for an apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> and pink. There's a lot of pink trees. All right. All right. So we're getting low on time, so just a couple more questions here. Um, uh, how long will the game run a person on like the first playthrough? Like, it, both with or without looking for secrets? Uh, I think if, if they're not looking for the secrets, they could probably do it in under five hours, just over four hours. I guess if they try to get every secret, I mean, because there's multiple endings, um, depending on choices you make in the game when you meet certain characters, um, I guess they'd probably call that maybe seven, eight hours. You could probably find all the stuff, but I don't know, but you, I guess you'd never know unless you check online if you found different things. So. And um, finally, uh, do you have a release date and price set? Uh, well, the price is going to be, oh, I can't remember what it's in dollars, hold on, I use my converter. Uh, well, it's 10.99 in pounds, which is, apparently that's, Sixteen eighty-eight in dollars, so I think it's going to be like fifteen dollars, um, or all thereabouts. Um, uh, release day, we're pre- it's going to be very soon. It's difficult to say. We're pretty much just waiting for uh, the versions of the game we sent to the console people to be approved, um, and then we can. We've got other stuff to do beyond that, just finishing things up. But we're like really close now. Um, It'll probably it will be uh, before winter for sure. Like definitely, I'm going to go past there. Hmm. It's definitely going to be in the next month or so. Like I think I saw it on Nintendo's website. Like the the game is releasing like this week, but I'm not sure how accurate. Yeah, we 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 saw that, um, and that was an error. If you go on there now, it says um, to be determined as the release date. Um, I don't know. I don't know why they put. September. I mean, we, we put, we did say a while ago we're going to release in September. We did like a little announcement, but like um, that's looking unlikely just based on uh, we underestimated how long the certification would take, I guess. But um, yeah, it's pretty close now, still, anyway. Yeah. Not the first time we've heard that when it comes to console certification. Probably not the last time we're going to hear that either. Yeah. All right, uh, Danny, it was lovely having you. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed what I've played of Pancho so far, and I'm looking forward to playing for, uh, more for the review. And uh, I do recommend, I, I will say, I, I'm leaning towards recommending this game. You know, it, it's very inventive and unique. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, you know, like I've seen the mechanic before, but I've never seen it given this much freedom. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so um, what platforms are uh, is Poncho coming to? 
Uh, yeah, so it's coming out on PC, Mac, Linux, Wii U, PS Vita, PS4, uh, and then hopefully, I don't know, maybe Xbox One in the future. We we haven't looked into that. We might, or if it does come out on Xbox One, it'd be like a later date, um, and hopefully 3DS in the future as well. If you know when the Unity version of that ever comes out. Right. Well then, um, the game is Poncho. It's going to probably retail for about fifteen dollars US, and it'll be out in the near future. All right, Teddy fans, play us to the next segment. All right. So, welcome to this week's topic of discussion. Uh, this week we're talking about the King's Quest franchise. Um, it's the first part of a new retrospective. It's not going to go as long as, say, our Pac-Man or Castlevania retrospectives, but it's going to be longer than, say, Leash Suit Larry, because we actually have some experience with this, uh, with this series, and there are um, eight games? Uh, actually, no, nine games with the release of the reimagining of King's Quest. So that's a bit of ground to cover. Yeah. Now, I was inspired to pick this topic because um, I saw Yahtzee's <clears throat> view on the most recent King's Quest game, and he was wondering why King's Quest was so beloved as an adventure game franchise in spite of its very kludgy design. And one of the answers is because King's Quest got the whole enterprise started. King's Quest basically invented the graphical adventure game. It's like, without King's Quest, you wouldn't have Space Quest, you wouldn't have Leisure Suit Larry, you wouldn't have LucasArts, you wouldn't have Myst, you wouldn't have any of it. Or if you did, it would probably look different. Because, you know, because King's Quest is maybe not the first adventure game, like not even the first Sierra adventure game, that award goes to Mystery House, but it's kind of, King's Quest was the doom of adventure games back in the day. It's the one that, uh, you know, everyone... To clarify, we are talking about it being similar in stature to the first-person shooter game, Doom, and not that it doomed the franchise of adventure games, because it's the opposite. Right. Yeah, it's like, and it really, and it really, it's actually really impressive how much it is like Doom in that regard. Because a King's Quest, the King's Quest franchise used to drive PC technology. You know, because, okay, King's Quest 1, it's a bit hard to, it's one of those things that's a bit hard to understand if you don't uh, know the context, but... Given, even though King's Quest One looks very rough by today's standards, you know, even the standards of say a decade or maybe even a, two decades ago, it was state of the art for its time period, which was 1981. Yeah, it, yeah. King's Quest was the first game to feature uh, what they call EGA graphics. I'm not exactly sure what, the, what that stand uh, what that stood for, but. What it meant was it could display more than four colors. The, the, the oldest uh, graphical display, CGA, was only four colors. 
Um, King's Quest one sported, I believe, about sixteen colors. Now, it's like, yeah, a Far Cry from what we can do, what, what they could do even at the end of the decade or beginning of the nineties. More on that when we get to King's Quest five, but. Uh, it was either this or you typed in stuff and had to imagine. Right, and that's another thing. King's Quest represents the bridge between the preceding, uh, I guess, genre or whatever you want to call it, what we call today interactive fiction. That's games like Zork, Colossal Cave Adventure, you know, these games that were were played in the 70s on the mainframes, and it was all text and you had to do it through a parser. Well, it's like King's Quest visualized a lot of that, but it wasn't too far removed from, say, the Zork series, in the sense that even though you could move around, um, you know, in four directions, like, and, and that was a huge revelation at the time, that you could go in more than one direction, like, it's still, you had to do the verbs and the nouns like an, uh, like an interactive fiction game. So, you know, you, ha- you would have to type in search tree. You would have to type in, you know, swim in lake. The parser system. Yeah, the parser system. Exits are north, south, east, west, and Dennis. Yeah. And, you know, a reason for that is because this is 1981, I think the mouse has been invented by this point, but it is certainly not in popular use, especially where this thing existed. And King's Quest One was meant to be the flagship title for the P- uh, for the ill-fated PC Junior. For those who don't know, this was a uh, kind of a spin-off of the PC, which was uh, I don't know, it was more game-oriented or something like that. It, you know. I guess that's kind of why the PC Junior failed. No, one of the reasons. You know, it wasn't really... It didn't really have its own identity. But anyway, you certainly weren't... You weren't really getting a mouse experience on the PC back in the early 80s. Enjoy the mode. Yeah. It's like, you know, mouse technology really didn't factor in until the mid-80s, you know, when uh, Apple released uh, the Macintosh and, you know, and Windows became a thing and all that. Like, in fact, I believe the first adventure game to use the mouse was Maniac Mansion. Yeah. And that was uh, 1986, 1987. Yeah. Um, and so the thing is, as innovative as King's Quest 1 was, it didn't really do well initially because, well, this is kind of what happens when you're stuck with a dead format. But another facet of the early 80s was there was more than, say, the PC. In fact, we'll probably be covering a lot of this more next week, more on that later, but you know, the, the King's Quest uh, series became popular once it moved to what they call the Tandy format, which is basically the PC Junior f- format rebranded because the PC Junior was that much of a failure. And um, the the Macintosh, 
or the Apple II. I think it was the Apple II. Uh, anyway, now uh, let's talk about the games themselves. Uh, Ogre, why don't you start us off with this? They will kill you. <laughs> yes. Uh, this, on- this is not a figurative statement, although it is a subjective statement or a uh, fictional statement. Like not a literal statement. The game will come to life and kill you. Yeah. But sometimes you wish it had. Yeah. Also, looking at you, Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. Also, as we're going to note throughout the series, there's going to be at least one puzzle in this goddamn series that borders, that is just flat out masochistically insane. No. And we'll start with King's Quest One. Like, if you know anything about this game, you will probably know about the Rumpelstiltskin puzzle. And what this is, is, okay, um, in order to get, uh, like, I think one of the three treasures, or, you know, certainly... I think you need an item from him so you can get one of the three treasures, which, by the way, you should probably go over the story of that real quick. Yeah, okay, so, uh, first, the story of uh, King's Quest is very, is pretty basic, actually, because... It's in the title. Yeah, yeah, and it's actually... It's actually the only one that actually kind of lives up to the uh, the title because it's more instead of you're a king going on a quest, you're you're sent you receive a quest from the from king. king to become king. You know, so uh, the story is um, the King Edward of Dra- Davin- the first of Daventry is dying uh, from some unspecific illness. You know, he's old. And he doesn't have an heir. Like, you know, so he summons up his best knight, Sir Graham, and he tasks him with finding three lost treasures of Daventry. There's the magic mirror, which is probably the most important of the three treasures, because that actually factors into future games. There's the um, chest f- uh, filled with go- never-ending gold coins, you can tell this is a fairy tale because, you know, economics aren't a thing. <laughs> I'm like, I'm guessing that's... I'm just guessing. I'm, I just realized it's a fairy tale because the best knight is one that can get lost and fall into a moat before he even meets the king for the quest. you got to really, really think hard on the rest of the night. <laughs> Indeed. But it's also... That's probably why the, the chest kind of disappears after the first game. And the third item is the magical shield, which, you know, will turn away any blow. Why that didn't come back in future games is a mystery. Anyway, so you're tasked with going through the land of about, ooh, I'm not sure exactly how big it was, um, criminally small by even the standards of the late 80s, but really, really big in comparison to what was available at the time. You know, like, we're talking... It's... And this is going to be weird to say, it's like GTA 3 levels of expansion. Because, you know, it's like... It's one of those games where people didn't realize how big a game could be until they played it. You know, and also keep in mind, even though the world is pretty compact, it's... There's a lot of stuff to do on each screen, for the most part. Now, and also, 
King's Quest had the original achievement system. Now, um, because King's Quest and indeed the entire Sierra uh, family of games would have a point system. And not everything you did in the game was necessary to complete it. So, you know, if you did extra stuff uh, with some of the early games, we'll get to this in King's Quest 2. Oh, we better damn well get to it. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to explain this fucking thing to me. So, yeah, but anyway, it, it's like the more inventive the solution or the batshit crazy, you know, the more points you get. Now, and anyway, and King's Quest is also renowned for being basically a hodgepodge mix of fantasy tropes. Uh, you know, straight-laced, like, I'm talking actual fairy tales. Like, we mentioned Rumpelstiltskin. I'm trying to think, what else showed up in the first game? Well, I'd say a dragon, but... Yeah. Those are very fairy tale like Right. Well, like, King's Quest Two had a lot of fairy tale elements. It's like, I'm pretty sure there, you know, there's more... Like an evil witch of some sort. Yeah. Uh, well, like an evil witch is like every game. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I I want to say the three bears. Sh- uh, oh they- yeah, you do raid the three bears place, don't you? Yeah. Like, like I said, a bit rusty on King's Quest One. Uh, and all right, so let's talk about the Rumpelstiltskin puzzle. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah. So and hurtful. Yeah. Okay, so this is the first infamous puzzle of the game. So the basic puzzle is, hey, there's a little gnome guy over there who wants you to guess his name. If you keep in mind, you only get a like, fairy tale. You probably know what his name is. You'll you only get three guesses at this, and then he just takes his item and leaves the game forever. Right. And you can't beat it. You have to start over from another state. Right. And the thing is, okay, initially, you know, it's Rumpelstiltskin backwards. But there's two versions of this puzzle. It was so difficult. The fixed solution is just Rumpelstiltskin backwards. You, know, you, you spell his name backwards. If people want to try to pronounce that again, please do. Yeah, I don't have it written down here. I have to write it down to read to say it. And, and it's something like Nictil Setmur or something. Yeah. And the and the real answer was okay. So. I believe the action the scenario is specifically that his name is Rumpelstiltskin, but he's in like a backwards area or something, so you have to think backwards, which is the hint you get. Sometimes it's helpful to think backwards. So the normal thing you do when you're thinking backwards is to spell the word backwards, not to do a reverse alphabet cipher, which is the original correct solution. Which he actually does say you're close, but still not there yet when you give him the reverse name. So, yeah, so you got yeah, the reverse alphabet cipher solution is completely unpronounceable. I don't, I don't know who came up with that one. That one confuses me. Think back. Sometimes it's good to think backwards, and by that I mean completely swamp every letter of the alphabet, so A becomes Z and Y becomes B and all that. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm like apparently they were trying to teach you crypto, you know, crypto uh, solutions. I guess they were expecting World War Three and just wanted kids to be able to decipher all the Russian lingo and whatnot. 
Oh shit. Yeah, and like I said, this is the this is the first infamous puzzle of King's Quest. It is not flat. Wait till we get to King Quest Quest Two. You will just hear me. <laughs> because I had to tell Ogre this. Mm. Because this is something that I still can't take it. <laughs> hey, imagine trying to actually play the through the fucking game and learning that was a thing. <laughs> I almost want to do just like a video on King's Quest Two. Just that section and just the only reaction is, what? Maybe for the next April Fool's uh, Day. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, let, let's... Uh, all right. So, the ending of King's Quest 1 is you find all the, tra- all the treasures. And the king's so happy, he literally dies. Yeah, he and literally I mean literally dies, because he gets up, crowns you, and just falls over dead. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of amazing. Like, I know there's people dying off and their usefulness for... The plot is over, but that was wow. That was. I was literally holding on to my last breath just so I could perform this one task. Yeah. I'm just gonna sit in the throne, and if anybody questions this, I'm just gonna say he said it was totally cool. (laughs) Legit. All right. So King's Quest Two. All right. Before we get to the thing that Ogre's been chomping at the bit at. All right, let me explain. Oh, yeah, they also have titles, too. Like, after King's Quest 2, they start getting titles. So King's Quest 1 was what? The Search for the Crown? The Quest for the Crown. Yeah. Quest for the Crown. Yeah. So King's Quest 2 is... Romancing the Throne. It's a playoff of Romancing the Throne. Because one thing King's it's Quest... It's a playoff of Romancing the Throne. Yeah, Romancing the Throne. Yeah. So the one thing King's Quest loves, it's its eventual puns. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> they even poke, they poke fun of that in the reimagining. Yeah, yeah. One other thing about King's Quest One, it did get a remake in the '90s using the King's Quest Five engine. But yeah, but it didn't really do all that well. Like that was kind of a thing that Sierra did. They they remade like the first game in their series, and they all kind of failed. So we didn't get remakes of the further games. Anyway, so King's Quest Two. Um, as the title might uh, inform you, this is the one where Graham uh, gets married. You know, and like I said, if the fairy tale um, motif hadn't hit you before, it really hits you in this one. Because I mean, the very the very setup is um, Rapunzel. <laughs> it's yeah. a girl in a tower. Don't worry, we don't get a song till the sixth one. Yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's Graham's wife, Queen Valance. Uh, trapped in an ivory tower by an evil witch. Like I said, one one interesting thing, one thing that might frustrate people is, this, like Roberta Williams clearly loved um, fairy tales and, and just would take them wholesale. You know, it plays things pretty straight, but not so straight that it's straight laced. If that makes any sense. That is to say. It's not a satire on, or it's poking fun on fairy tales, but it has a sense of humor about itself. Uh, anyway, so King's Quest Two. All right, Ogre, let's talk about this puzzle. Uh, is it the bridge one or is it the snake? All right, well, the bridge one's important too. Right. All right. Well, before we talk about the puzzles, let's talk about you know these. Uh, the setup. Um, it's pretty much like King's Quest 1, only a bit bigger. Like, you're still collecting three objects 
in, in this case, you there's this door floating in the middle of nowhere. Well, and you've got to open it with three keys, and this will lead to the bridge. Okay, so this is also when Sierra started fucking you over. Because and they loved it too. Yeah. In ways that are not immediately obvious. Oh, God, oh. yeah. You, no, I don't think anybody tells you about this either. No, it's like... no. It just happens when you screw up that point. Well, yeah, it's because, okay, this is like another one of the most infamous things about this series, because this bridge, there's this bridge you cross... Um, and you To can, get to the door. Yeah, to the door. And it turns out you only have a limited number of crosses like maybe five, six times, and every time you cross, that counts. You know, so after a certain point, and you might be wondering why would you cross more than, say, the minimum required amount of times. Remember, this is an early adventure game, and the hints are for each key are contained, are written on the door themselves. So if, let's say, for supposition's sake, you forgot one of the hints for the keys and you didn't write it down. You didn't think you needed to write it down. So you go over there. Or hell, you did write it down, but you forgot the paper. Yeah. Whatever. You know, you want to go read that hint and... And the internet wasn't existent yet, so... Right. So you do that, you're just wasting a crossing. And then it's like, by the time you, you know, you're on the third key, all of a sudden the bridge keeps collapsing, and you're wondering what the fuck's going on. That's pretty, that was pretty much my experience with King's Quest 2. Granted, King, I, I played King's Quest 2 not back when it was new, but for whatever reason, my middle school had it in the, the computer lab, and we played that a lot. And... Yeah, really frustrating. You know, it's like, and, and there's a lot of fairy tale stuff in this one. You know, you, not just the Rapunzel stuff, but you got um, also mythology because you got um, King uh, Neptune there. You've got um, uh, Red Riding Hood. You've got uh, Count Dracula. You know, uh, you've got the Batmobile for, uh, because Batcave. That is the thing that happened. Now, this is also one of the most famous Easter eggs with these hidden Space Quest promos. And if you want to talk about how hardcore this fucking fairy tale shit gets, or mythology, or you know, whatever pools they are drawing from, we've got the the snake puzzle. Oh god, that fucking snake puzzle. <laughs> okay. So you see, the thing is with King Quest, like the earlier ones. Like, the later ones just kind of had, like, he had one solution to it. But the earlier ones, you had, like, the right solution. You had, like, the solution and the better solution, which was usually the batshit insane one. Right. So so the snake, you could pretty much just kill it with a sword, and that'd be it. Yeah. There is also the it's not a solution, and you'll die if you try it. Yeah, but, but that, yes. that's, that's a staple. Like, okay, like, you're given, like, three items... And the sword has a snake on it, and there's a, there's a snake blocking uh, the way to, um, uh, I forget if it's, a tra- if it's one of the keys or if it's something you need for one of the keys. Anyway, you, 
you kill it with the sword, you get points, you can move on. Easy peasy. The preferred solution is you throw a bridle on it. And by bridle, we mean the thing you put on a horse to control it. Because, and brace your minds, because this will never be explained in anything. The closer you can get is Greek mythology, and even that's kind of a eh. But apparently, if you throw a magic bridle at a snake, it instantly transforms the snake into a pegasus, and therefore you can ride it. Yeah, and you are- I don't know how that works. I don't know when a Want to know well, why? Clearly, the snake is actually no sense. But my God, the lengths you'd have to go to figure out that one. Yeah. This this is the puzzle that I have to be that has to be the one that made everyone just go like just click on everything, just click everything on it until something works. Well, it's one of them. Now, but here's the thing: this isn't even the most difficult game in the in the franchise. We're going to close things out with King's Quest 3. Oh boy, King's Quest 3. Where to start with this piece of shit? And yeah, you know what? Thinking on it, King's Quest 3 was kind of bad. Well, you you don't play as King Graham in this one. That was the first thing. Okay, so once again, keep in mind, when the game was released, you know, um, mid-80s, you know, internet is Usenet and all that shit. Um, you're not playing as King Graham. And, like, this actually pissed off a lot of people back in the day, as I understand it, because, you know, this was the third game in the franchise, and it hadn't established that you play as different, um, protagon- you know, different people in the, um, I don't know what his last name is, Graham. Cracker. Yeah, yeah, we know what his last name is, but it's not really relevant. Yeah. The royal family of Daventry. Yeah, it's like in the, if you will, Cracker Dynasty. Yeah, th- this is what happens when you set up puns. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you're playing... You do after, after this game, you do play as a different person about every other game, so... Yeah, but I'm saying back, at the, back in the day, you know, you had two games with uh, King Graham back-to-back. Now all of a sudden you're... It's not just you, like, you're just... Uh, seemingly, you're playing as some random guy named Gwydion. You know, he's the slave. He's the servant slash slave of this wizard Manahan, and for what? A, and he's the overall premise is he's uh, sharpening his knife and he's getting ready to kill you because Manahan's trick is he kidnaps young boys and you know basically has them serve as their how you know house slave slash possible sexual molestation object you know god i hope not you never know but anyway the, the point is you know he tends to kill off his wards when they reach about age 16 17 you know when they, 18 yeah when they can threaten to overpower him and so guess what your quest is to do? Overpower the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. And that, wait, there's more. Yeah, and that gets into the fucking mechanics of this game. It's like, okay, so first off, the first, I'm not exactly sure how much of a percentile it, it is, but the, 
you know, like your your overall goal in the first part of the game is to get on a pirate ship, and you have a fucking countdown to do it. In. It's like if you because this is an important pirate ship that has places to be. Yeah, it's like if you don't reach that ship in time, you're dead. You're dead. Just flat out. Well, I'm not sure if it, if it, the game kills you or if it's just unwinnable, but... I'm pretty sure it kills you because the ship just leaves without you and you can't escape Mananen because he only leaves three times and after that he just straight up kills you. Right. So, everything, like, everything you do in this game... Up is timed. Yeah. Because you have a literal timer up in the corner. Yeah. And, yeah, this is one of the reasons why I didn't get very far in this game because you know you got that fucking clock and this is an early adventure game you know and, and playing it without a fucking solution yeah you get very vexing it's uh, this has also got some of the most complex puzzles in the game or in the, Ooh, game. the magic system the magic system because the way you defeat Manahan is you got to get a spell book and you've got to cast a spell. You have to trick him into eating a special cookie. Right. And it, Not a pot cookie, but yeah. keep thinking. Yeah, it turns him into a cat. And it's, like I said, I really can't speak to too much of this puzzle because the game pissed me off so much, I rage pissed him back. You know, it's like, but it's renowned as being one of the most difficult. You know. And because the spells came in a little booklet that came with the game. Yes. Because this is this is this is your and I think one of the first or one of the first instances of hard copy DRM. Yes. If yes. you didn't have the manual, you were fucked. <laughs> and see, here's the hard part. If you even had the manual, you have to spell everything correctly. One mis one misletter, one wrong space. One typo. The spellbook just kills you. Hell, even opening up the spellbook and closing it without casting a spell, game's over. The game overs you. Yeah. It is a very cruel game. This is. Yeah, this is cruel even by Sierra standards. And, but even when you defeat Manhattan and escape, it's not the end of the game. Yeah, because oh, because it turns out that Gwydion is actually Prince Alexander, the son of King Graham, and he totally shocks everyone. But and for reasons that escape me, you have to save your sister Roselia from a three-headed dragon. I think she was either sacrificing herself to keep the kingdom at peace, or she was kidnapped by it. Something. Either or, she's in the grips of a dragon. You got to take care of that. Yeah. It, I, also, your birthmark is on your buttocks. Thankfully, you only have to show it once because if you had to show the whole kingdom, that would get a little awkward. Uh, speaking of awkward, the things you can do with your sister are, well, not as rapey as you, as some people might think. That, that would be. At least the game has standards. It's like, no, she's your sister. Don't think about it. Yeah. But, although it, the, the the details are kind of. Leary. Yeah, if you look her or touch her, because those are commands you have, look and touch, you get uh, interesting responses. Apparently, 
in uh, apparently Alexander finds his sister Han, but has to be told by the game, ah, oh, she's your sister, dude. Let's not Star Wars this creep out, okay? Yeah, and I'll also note that this game series was created by a, a woman. Uh, you know, just in case you want I guess she knew that royalty likes to interbreed. Yeah, like, you know, just, you know, just in case you're wondering if this was stereotypical male stuff, you know, it's like, that doesn't seem to be because... But whatever. Um, anyway, so that about wraps it up for this installment of King's Quest. Um, you know, next time we'll talk about, you know, um, King's Quest 4 to, to at least 6. You know, also we'll probably highlight more about Roberta Williams, the creator and executive producer on the old things. Because we kind of need to. Yeah. By the way, just because we say it sounds bad doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get them. Yeah. It's like... I, I, everyone's gotten used to LucasArts style, although if you do get the King's Quest collection off of Steam, save early, save often, keep multiple save files, or, you know, just watch it on fucking YouTube. Or if you're really hardcore trying to do it in one save. Yeah. Like, and don't actually do this unless you've played the game at least twice before. You'll still probably mess up somehow. All right, so that about wraps it up for this week. Um, so next week, um, our guest had to request a delay of um, interview um, because he's going to he, he was apparently going to be out of his country for a few weeks, and the interview is still happening. Although that's happening next February, he actually requested that. So I'm like, okay, we got shit open. It's, usually people don't request that far out. Anyway, so we don't have a guest next week. I did put out a feelers to a few different companies. We'll see what happens there, but um, if that doesn't happen, and quite frankly, I'm as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm I'm actually wanting to do an hour long topic, and I have the topic in mind. So if by oh, some really, reason, yes. It's going to be talking about computer game, uh, computer gaming in the '80s, the microcomputer revolution. You know, because this is a subject that we haven't really touched upon, but it's also a very, very big subject. Because, like, for example, there was it wasn't just one computer format or two computer formats, like, or a few computer formats like we have today. There were a whole bunch of these things around. From the Commodore 64, the Apple, the Tandy, uh, you know, the Amiga, the PC, just on and on it goes. Not just here. You know, this it's is kind of weird to think about living as we do in the days of basically two major formats of computer, both of which are actually mostly compatible with each other okay. for common use. Yeah, and that's not even going internationally with uh, things like the ZX Spectrum, the MSX. Um, uh, the BBC Micro. Um, a lot I'm kind of forgetting here because, you know, uh, late 80s computer formats in Europe are not really my forte, but, uh, you know, the, the, enti- the entire computer gaming scene was very, very fragmented. Very, very, you know, Format based. We'll talk a lot more about this next week. 
know, and uh, you know, I'm actually looking forward to uh, to this because you know, I like talking about these kinds of things. Right? But until such time, and also be sure to tune in for Uplit with Mace happening next. Um, Moonhawk Studios presents uh, happening this Friday at uh, 10, and our Way of the Samurai 4 review happening this Sunday at 8.35 p.m. Now, until the next time we meet, which should be in a couple days, all I can do is wish you good gaming. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.